following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Let's hope second time is a charm. Episode 866, part two, take two of I Doubt It Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Dollimore, joined today by Brittany Page. I just want to say, not my fault. I now edit the show and post the show. Not, It's neither of our fault. Yeah, but it was this, so we recorded this episode already. I guess already. We, could, we could blame Road. The Roadcaster Pro. Sure. That <laughs> is probably the likely culprit. We recorded the show already. It was a great show. <laughs> we had... Seriously, let's address that real quickly. Yeah. We rarely come out of a show, I think, both saying that was good. Very, very good. I cried at the end. Serious. I mean, that's not like a surprise. I, yeah. I cry frequently on the show. Yeah. But I mean, it was emotional. It was fantastic. We're gonna. We're not gonna try to recreate it because that just then we'll just retry thinking of well, what did I say last time? We're yeah. not gonna do that. Yeah. Because many of you know the show's not scripted. I mean, we've got like a rundown that we follow, mm-hmm. but it's just a conversation between two people. So yeah. yeah. So anyway, we are recovering from that, and honestly, it's a little scary because we have we have interviews coming up. We have three interviews scheduled for the month of June. One right of now. which is a big. The biggest person we've ever had on the show. Yeah, which we've had to reschedule three times. So we're really yeah. hoping that this comes through. And if you're wondering, like, why aren't they telling us who they're having on the show? It's because we have to reschedule these all the time. And we've actually had people cancel on us and then never respond again. So <laughs> we we don't want to say, oh, we're having this person on the show and get everyone really excited for that and then have it not work out. So. Yeah. We've, you know, had to deal with a lot of these scheduling conflicts, and we're just kind of rolling with it. So, so. so I, we haven't really said, because I interrupted several times. We recorded this episode yesterday. When you edited it, you went to edit, you dropped all the files in, you know, your normal pro- procedure, mm-hmm. and it was all corrupted. Mm-hmm. Every single file was corrupted. Right. So, uh, we were... I, I was apoplectic. I was... Very, very upset. Well, and we posted an update on Patreon just to let everyone know. And someone commented and said that we should always have a backup, like recording on the phone. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. But Jesse would never go for posting audio that was recorded with the phone. He wants the audio to be very good. And (laughs) that would not be good enough for his situation. Well, also, I think people say that in the moment. And then you try to listen to a phone yeah, recorded podcast. Yeah, it's garbage. That's that's not going to be good. I mean, yeah. we we put a lot of effort, time, money into how our podcast studio not only looks but sounds. Mm-hmm. And it, this is the best sounding room we've ever recorded in. Mm-hmm. I am like every person who's ever come in the studio. Like, oh, look what we did. They're like, oh, holy shit! Mm-hmm. It sounds amazing in here. Yeah, I think Sweepy was in here barking yesterday. Yeah, and her bark just gets absorbed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does not bounce off the walls. So yeah, okay, we are back. We're here, and we are going to. This was going to be another great one, in a different way. <laughs> in a different way. Okay, so. One thing that has been coming up since we moved and we've been having people over is an ongoing debate of shoes on, shoes off in the house. And I have long been a shoes off in the house person. I was raised that way. And I know that's shocking. You're like, what? You were raised by wolves and they somehow had time to worry about shoes in the house? Absolutely. Well, one of the wolves was interested (laughs) in cleanliness. Interested in cleanliness. That's one way to put it. Sure. (laughs) And so, and when I talk, when I say shoes off, I mean shoes off at the door left outside. Not even. Not outside. They're left at the door. Outside the door. Literally outside. Oh, oh, your home that you grew up in. Yes. Yeah, that's not what we do. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that this is not going to be as good because you're having a problem tracking the conversation. But you'll get there. You'll you'll pick it up. So we are now a shoes off house. And has that always been the case for you? No, not not at all. No way. Not shoes on. Really? I mean, not shoes off. Really? Yeah. White trash welfare house. Just... Excuse me, I was also yeah, a white true. trash welfare house. Yeah, but you, there was a weird anomaly thing, like a a a, a tear in the t- space time <laughs> continuum related to yeah. your mom's obsession with vacuuming and having the lines in the carpet and that carpet OCD lines. shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So no, that was not no, uh, that was not my experience. We were we were a shoes on house. Yeah. Not a priority to take them off. Yeah, well, it can be quite controversial sometimes when people come over and I ask them, okay, you know, please take off your shoes. There can be a little bit of a protest. It can be kind of uncomfortable because people are, you know, divided on this issue. And I didn't realize how divided people are on this issue until I saw an actual news package about it this week from CBS's, what's what's the reporter's name that does the different kind of stories over there? Moraka. Moraka. And he interviewed a woman who is a proponent of wearing shoes in the house and a man who is anti-wearing shoes in the house. Ask Amy advice columnist Amy Dickinson knows where she stands. What's happening here? Am I removing or? You're keeping your shoes on. Okay. Dickinson, who lives in the Finger Lakes region of New York, grew up on a dairy farm. I got together with some friends from high school last week, and I was asking them, shoes on, shoes off, and they were all like, oh, no, shoes on. And that's when I decided, people who live in the country, we wear shoes indoors. Dickinson, who wrote a column on this very subject back in 2007, sees the debate as an issue of hospitality. In my experience, every time I have been asked to remove my shoes, of course I've done so, but I always feel like the host is valuing their floors more than they're valuing their guests or other people's comfort. Hey! Hi. Welcome, welcome. Come on in, Mo. Nice to meet you. Oh, no. But for Los Angeles-based writer Jeff Yang, asking guests to remove their shoes and wear slippers... (laughs) Left shark, right shark? ...is precisely about hospitality. I think what changing into slippers does is it gives you a sense of uh, informality and comfort and intimacy, right? Yang is something of a convert. Growing up on New York's Staten Island, he didn't always abide by house rules. I was a little rebellious. I mean, that's the extent of the rebellion, right? Not like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's like, I'm going to wear my shoes in the house, Mom. And that was part of the reason that my parents felt like a semester spent abroad would be a good thing for me, to learn a little how things are, are supposed to be done. So at the age of eight, Yang was sent to stay with his aunt, Chi Mei, in Taiwan, where shoes are not worn in the house. I just sort of walked on in thinking, okay, I'm going to give her a big hug. But as I was walking in, she basically raised her hand and said, what do you think you're doing? And I stopped and she said, if you walk into my house with your shoes on, you're walking across my heart. (laughs) With those words, Yang's aunt instilled in him a deeper lesson. When you take off your shoes, you're changing yourself from a stranger to a friend and family member. And as a result, are sort of transformed from outsiders to insiders. For many in the shoes off camp, it's strictly about hygiene. Indiana University biogeochemist Gabriel Filippelli has been tracking what the shoes on people are tracking into their homes, including at least one dangerous contaminant. I took samples of my dust and brought it into the lab. And it was like, oh, my God, it was super high uh, for lead. And by taking your shoes off, you still might have some lead in the house, but significantly less. That's exactly right. Um, And I've now done a post-measurement of my own own human experiment. It's reduced by more than half. Reduced by more than half. Okay. So that's a lot. That's a lot. So I am in the cleanliness camp. That's primarily what my concern is. And I find it interesting that the the pro shoes on in the house woman talked about it as though it's an issue of hospitality and that people who ask you to remove your shoes are, as she said, valuing their floors more than the guests. 
Yeah, I don't get that. And I guess it's just strange because it, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to just like take your shoes off when you come over to someone's house. Well, especially, well, one, it's not, we don't do it for the floor's sake. We do it for cleanliness and health because there's some filthy, vile shit that you dre- you walk in when you walk outside. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you live in the country, mm-hmm. you're walking where dog shit and piss <laughs> and do other things and there's people spit on the ground and there are just terrible things i the 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 lead which is troubling that's that's a whole element that we didn't even talk about yesterday but that's a troubling element in and of itself Mm -hmm. explain that everything's connected theory of britney page (laughs) i mean because really this settled it for me this was i'm not as as uh committed to the prospect like i don't mind like if i'm need to go from one side of the house to the other real quick to grab my keys or my sunglasses or whatever, I, in my heart, would just walk across the floor with my shoes real quick. Mm-hmm. I don't do that because I want to respect you, what you, your thing is. Mm-hmm. But the everything's connected really settled it for me that it's the right way to go. Yeah. So just keeping in mind that it's somewhat neurotic, the every, everything. I don't know why you always qualify. I don't think it is. The everything's connected theory. Let's Let's take an example that that people would likely relate to because most people may not relate to like walking on a rat carcass and then coming home. So yeah, cause they don't, they don't walk on the streets of a city. Yeah. Um, so everyone has been in a public bathroom where they look down at the ground Great and example. there's piss everywhere and long hairs and possibly other items on the ground that you are stepping in. Yeah. And you may even look over and see that someone has set their purse in the piss and you found that interesting and then you decided to leave the bathroom and come home and walk into your home with your your bathroom piss shoes and now your floors have become bathroom piss floors. Right. No, it's not it is and, true. And so then you the, the piss on your shoes doesn't magically go away yeah so then you decide you know your bathroom piss shoes you've kind of worn them enough you're ready to relax for the night so you take them off and you start walking around your house with your your feet and now your feet have become bathroom piss feet <laughs> and then and then you get in your bed yeah. with your bathroom piss feet <laughs> and your bed is now a bathroom piss bed <laughs> Oh, yeah. It makes absolute sense Uh that it is connected. Yes. And so this... And listen, people might say, well, what about Sweepy? (laughs) Sweepy walks on the the concrete. We don't put shoes on Sweepy. She does, yeah. People would be maybe not surprised to know that Brittany... Sweepy's used to the routine now. She holds her leg up. There's a there's a a package of wipes mm-hmm. at the door and Sweepy gets her feet wiped every single time she comes back in the house. Yeah. So that is Which by the way there is shit on her feet every single time. Yeah, it's not for antibacterial purposes, so I understand that I'm not preventing a spread of germs, but I am removing dirt every single time. The you know, the wipe is never clean. So I know that in my mind, I have a tendency to get very anxious about about germs. I think that I'm high functioning. I'm able to manage it pretty well. I'm not, you know, Howard Hughes, but <laughs> I I do I can get anxious about this stuff. So I and I I accept that a lot of it isn't rational and a lot of it doesn't make sense. And I can't protect myself from everything, and that's, like, not possible. So, Life is a fucking nightmare. I mean, that's really the best summary. And <laughs> <laughs> so I just try to focus on what I can control, and if I can, you know, it's not a big deal to wipe Sweepy's feet. And she puts her leg out now when she comes in. Like, she expects it. She's like, and my feet will be cleaned now, <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, I just think... When I go to someone's house and they wear shoes in their house, I'm not like, wait a minute, we need to reset. I'm going to clean your floors for you. Give me a few minutes. Right. And then right. you're going to become a shoes off house because this is unacceptable. No, I just wear my shoes in their house because that's what, what they do. And also, I, you don't want to cover your socks in, in bathroom piss from their floors. <laughs> right. And uh, <laughs> yeah, everything is connected. So, but. I think the slippers thing is a cool idea, like having slippers at the door for yeah, people to use sure. so then they feel comfortable. Because it has, it, people have made comments that they aren't as comfortable 
with nothing on their feet, like that they prefer house shoes. Hmm. And sometimes they don't understand like house shoes because they try to wear their house shoes outside and then come back in the house with their house shoes. And I'm like, those aren't house shoes anymore. Those are outside yeah, shoes now. Yeah, now they're bathroom piss <laughs> shoes. Now they're r- dead rat carcass shoes. Anyway, you see how quickly this can spiral Let me out say that. Well, one, I want to invite, uh, I'm sure every time we happen to even br- brush across this topic, we get a bunch of feedback. I'd love to hear them. 657-464-7609. I doubt it at dollamore.com. Uh, the one thing I, I noticed here that is interesting to me is the the shoes on lady. Uh-huh. She's an advice columnist. Oh, good. <laughs> Who's going to read this lady's column when all she's doing is giving her own particular brand and flavor of life? Like, you should do it my way. Yeah. That's what a ding dong. <laughs> I think that's kind of what advice columns are, though, right? <laughs> I don't know. Don't you kind of just dissect from? Ah, we're getting into a whole different topic. Yeah. Anyway, I I'm I'm not as firmly or or anxiety driven in the camp of shoes off, but it makes a ton of sense to me, mm-hmm. and I will continue my life. Yeah, that way. Thank yeah. you, Brittany Page. Yeah, it's also easy to do, and then you don't track MRSA and C diff into your house. <laughs> <laughs> MRSA. I don't even know what C diff is. <laughs> well, you don't want to read about it. Ugh. Yeah. So or lead, which it causes great declines in cognitive function over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. So we want to thank our Patreon supporters, and I'm realizing in this moment that again we I have a workflow when we do the show where. When I'm doing things like reading the new names, I move all of the new names to an inbox after I have read them. And I'm realizing now that that's what I did. And so I'm going to read... Insert edit point here. I'm going to read some names. Well, I'm just going to go where I think we read last. And if we didn't read your name, email us and we will get it read. Okay, so... Thank you to Jeff G. Jeff G. Roberto G. Roberto G. Jeff and Carol G. Jeff and Carol G. <laughs> oh, Nancy R. Nancy R. Leslie E. Leslie E. Randy W. Randy W. This is an email, so Lu- Lucia. Lucia or Lucia? Yes. We know someone named Lucia. Yes. Who we called Lucia until she corrected us. So let us know which way it is. Yeah, absolutely correct us. KC. KC. Deborah MD. Deborah MD. John R. John R. Emmy. Emmy. Emmy A. Emmy A. And then we want to give a special shout out to Brendan M. Brendan M. Thank you. Brendan M for increasing the pledge. And Nancy R. Nancy R. Increased the pledge. Wow, Nancy R. Became a new Patreon supporter and then turned right around and increased that pledge. Wow, that's the way to do it. Yeah, because Nancy was like, you know what? They're really struggling with this equipment and and they need some assistance. So we're going to give that to them. Uh, Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. We did message the Patreon supporters to uh, in the specific tier for the Hangout to let them know that we moved it based on requests that we received because of Memorial Day weekend. And that fit with our schedule. So this Saturday, June 3rd at 1 p.m. Eastern is the Hangout for Patreon supporters in the Hangout tier. And we will look forward to seeing you then. All right. Well, let's get to some listener communication before we move on with the rest of the Action Pack show. We have an email and a voicemail. Let's start with the email. Yeah. So we got an email and the subject said, please stop. So <laughs> uh, it's going to be a banger. You know, we want to read that one. <laughs> Jesse, Brittany, I love you. Jordan Neely was not murdered. Jordan Neely was failed by society and his death was unfortunate, but by no means was it tragic. Jordan Neely was a terrorist. Jordan Neely got himself killed when he proclaimed his willingness to die if the people in that train didn't give him what he wanted. Jordan Neely was not murdered. Jordan Neely acted an ass and was prohibited the opportunity to harm others. Please stop victimizing him. There should be a Marine on every car. Ugh. 
So there who is who wrote this? Well, there is a name on the email, but it's not in the email. So again, we're going to keep it anonymous. Is it Daniel Penny? Did Daniel <laughs> Penny, the killer of Jordan Neely, write this email to us? I. It's possible. It's possible. A marine on every car, like Penny did something patriotic. There should be one of you on every car, Ugh. Jesse D. Yeah. Listen, um, one, I think I can speak for Brittany fairly, fairly safely here. Uh, we are not going to stop. I think there is an argument to be made about what language is used, whether or not it's been determined he has, that he was murdered. Certainly, yeah, sure. He was killed. Uh, I think I certainly have a tendency to a flair for the dramatic, use words like murder when I feel like it was murder. Uh, but from a legal standpoint, uh, we all we know now is that Daniel Penny killed Jordan Neely. And whether it was justified, I guess that's up to you. I guess if you have a wrong opinion, you 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 feel like it's justified. Or as the as the Daniel Penny stand-in here wrote, <laughs> that he was a terrorist who got himself killed. Yikes. These are straight up Matt Walsh talking points from uh, an extensive uh, listener of the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I, I'm open to having my mind changed on this issue, but I'll tell you this email didn't do it because there's no, you know, new examination of evidence or, or anything like that. It's just a series of statements that are based on this person's feelings. And again, I... Uh, the reporting on whether or not Jordan Neely directly threatened passengers is not... I, I haven't seen any legitimate reporting on that. I think that that is something that kind of got picked up in the conservative commentary, and it's now something that's being repeated. Right. You can interpret him saying that he is uh, you know, sick of everything and he's ready to go to jail for life. You can interpret that as a violent phrase that, that means he's threatening to do something to other people on the car. I can argue that, you know, that would be just as, uh, just as much explained by suicidal ideation and wanting to kill himself than, than harm someone else. But also if he's so ready to go to jail, he didn't put his hands on anybody. No one. He didn't touch one single person on the motherfucking train. Yeah, and again, he was put in a chokehold for 15 minutes. Daniel Penny had the training to subdue him and not kill him. Absolutely. Jordan Neely was a small man. Daniel Penny was bigger than him. He has, the again, the training to be able to prevent harm, as this person emailed, prevent harm without killing him and and choking him to death so i mean it's it's continuing to be this this debate and i think that it's proving that it's about something else it's not really about jordan neely it is indicating how people feel about the other jordan neelys in our society disposable yeah i mean dispensable it's sad and i don't want a marine on every car i do want people to be safe when they're riding the metro when they're riding the subway that's very important but i also think that feelings of discomfort shouldn't mean that you can kill people you're going to feel uncomfortable in public at times there's going to be people that are doing things that make you feel uncomfortable and you can't kill everyone simply because you feel uncomfortable the other thing about this, and look, I don't want to, I don't want to draw Spider Man with great power comes great responsibility uh, <laughs> narratives here, but uh, Daniel Penny was well trained. He was a Marine, knew what the what the outcome of a fifteen minute chokehold would be. Certainly knew at what point Jordan Neely went limp unconscious and uh was dying knew this he knew this this isn't speculation i know based on my training as a united states marine just as as much as daniel penny does so if i was placed in this position which by the way i have been in this position i used i bounced in bars and I worked among colleagues who were always eager for a fight. Mm. Colleagues, they're fellow bouncers, uh, ready to throw to throw hands, ready to knock somebody out. Wasn't my preferred method. I would try to de-escalate or or just get somebody out of the bar, restrain somebody. Uh, 
and uh, it happened a few times where you would have to you'd end up on top of somebody and you would choke them out. But you know when they go limp, and then you carry them outside. <laughs> it just Which, seems so strange that this is happening in bars. Like, what is going on? Well, you know, <laughs> it's instant asshole. Just add alcohol. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's people get crazy. Yikes. But you know when someone goes limp, and then you carry them out. If I was to continue to choke someone for 15 minutes after they're unconscious, it's they're going to die. Yeah. When you deprive the brain of oxygen for that long, it's irreversible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's even for a brief moment being put out like that, we would carry them out, and then they wake up outside after having just been fighting, mm-hmm. and there's... There's no, they don't remember going out. All they remember, fighting, fighting, and then all of a sudden they're outside like, oh, shit, time warp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it does that much of a discombobulation to the system to be out for three seconds, five seconds, imagine what this Marine knew. I mean, the 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 the, the emailer wants a Marine on every train, so you want homeless people just killed willy-nilly at any, any instance or 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 little flight of oh, I'm uncomfortable. Someone's standing, sitting too close to me. Someone doesn't smell the way I want them to smell on the train. We need to choke them. Mm-hmm. Come on, we're better than that. Yeah. So thank you for the email. Um, we we did not have our minds changed by it, but yeah, make better arguments. Make an actual <laughs> argument. That's not an argument that you made. But thank you for loving us. That is that is very nice. Thank you. So we have a voicemail here from Anonymous. Hi, uh, Jesse and Brittany. Uh, this is, uh, let's just go with an anonymous, anonymous caller. Um, I've called before. Uh, I'm a friend of the show, longtime listener, and uh, recently uh, I began working inside of a prison. Uh, I'm not going to say in what state or uh, or what position I have, but uh, we can all assume. Uh, but my question is to you: uh, what what is the real answer to fixing the violent not violent crime, but uh, people uh, reoffending? in prisons, uh, people overdosing in prisons, uh, just a lot of these things, like, I'm not saying it, I'm not coming from, like, a point of, like, oh, this stuff is bad, this is why prisons are good, I actually am coming from the opposite, I'm coming from all this stuff is bad, and it keeps happening, so prison's bad, and that needs to change. And, uh, yeah, it's a big culture shock, uh, being inside there for the first, well, not for the first time. I've been working there for about two months now. Uh, I'm still not completely, uh, sure how I feel about it and everything. Uh, so I'd really like to know what your opinions, uh, what you guys' opinions are on, uh, mass incarceration and, uh, just the overall treatment of, these human beings at the end of the day they're human beings that made mistakes but it's hard to also when I think of this stuff like I'm thinking of the families that are affected by some of these crimes and some of these people um like uh, for example we had an inmate that uh killed his grandmother and lit her on fire uh very very like example but for that, it's like, I understand rehabilitation should be available to everybody, but what what's the answer to that? Like, should this person be able to be rehabilitated for the rest of their life and then be free, or should they be able to rehabilitate? And I don't know. I'd like to know what you guys think about it. Uh, love the show. Brittany's the best part. Bye. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. So I have a lot of thoughts about this, and I just want to say something to the caller first because it sounds like they are, well, they use the phrase culture shock and experiencing a culture shock, and 
going through this process of thinking about the system that they are working in and probably what it means for them working in this system and for some of the problems they're starting to see and, and the things that they don't agree with or that don't line up with their values and how they're going to continue to kind of work within this system or even if they want to continue. So kind of the, the, the admonition to, to not or to buttress yourself against getting jaded. Yeah, and I think that that can happen very quickly in an environment when you're sure. when you're in prison. I mean, you've even seen it with colleagues who work in different mental health scenarios that the you know some people get jaded. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's easy to do in a situation when you're working in a prison, or you know, I I worked in a court mandated program, and I worked with clients who had been in jails. They they hadn't been in prison, but they were in jails, and. It was a program where they needed to maintain sobriety. And when you went into jail, there was ease of access of drugs. And and I think a lot of people don't don't know that. And so when the caller was talking about people overdosing in prisons, people reoffending in prisons, you go into prisons and you go into jails and you can continue being exactly who you were on the outside, on the inside. You just slip right in. And it, it can be a difficult place to find rehabilitation. Well, I don't think it, our our system in the United States, I don't believe, on the whole, largely, is geared or designed for rehabilitation. I think it's just for detention. Mm-hmm. It's just a timeout where terrible shit happens. Mm-hmm. And I guess the the two questions that he that he's asking here are, are about reoffending in prison and, and overdosing or or using drugs in prison. I would say, especially related to the drug use, how are those getting in? It's not like they're escaping jail to go score on the street and then escaping back into the jail. They're not breaking it out and then breaking back in. Someone's helping. Someone, maybe a colleague of yours in your particular facility, is aiding in the trafficking of drugs to inmates who then die of overdoses that seems to be a a problem of the system Mm -hmm. yeah so i think the 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 bigger questions here from the caller about mass incarceration um that rehabilitation should be available to everybody but also the caller said they think of the families that have been impacted by the crimes that people have committed that it's an absolutely valid conversation and thought yeah and i think a lot of this is just surrounding our culture and how we we view people that are in poverty, that get caught up in the criminal justice system, that do get sent to jail, that do get sent to prison, that struggle with substance use. Uh, the culture surrounding these things needs to change. It's also our lack of policies in early childhood education and, and giving people access to benefits like food stamps and uh, rent control and affordable housing. I mean, all of these things really create a system where people are pushed into poverty and then pushed into the criminal justice system. But speaking now, like for this person who's working in a prison system and trying to grapple with these big questions of is rehabilitation available to everybody? Should rehabilitation be available to everybody? I think what working in these systems requires is that you believe rehabilitation should be available to everybody. And I recently started volunteering at a mental hospital here where most of the patients have been convicted of crimes and sent to the hospital. And when I started working there, I was very pleased when the volunteer coordinator told me that their perspective is that everyone is treated as though they will eventually be rehabilitated and released from the hospital, even if that is not the case Mm -hmm. for some of them, even if they will be there forever. And... I think that that's a really a really positive way to treat people and um if if they have any chance at all of being rehabilitated then they need to come into contact with people who believe in their rehabilitation and it reminded me of uh that book that I recently read that I talked about rough sleepers about Dr. Jim O'Connell who works with the unhoused in Boston and in that book they talk about this concept of pre-admiration and that he exhibited this this ability for pre-admiration, which means that he is eventually going to like everyone that he meets. Like, he may not have a reason to like them now, but he will find a reason to like them. 
and eternally optimistic. Yeah, I thought that was great. And really, his job requires it. And he's working with people who society has cast aside that may be very difficult to work with, that have committed crimes, that have done bad things. But he talks about in the book that it's not up to him to figure out what they did or even know what they did. It's not important. It's up to him to meet them where they're at and try to help them get to a better place. And it actually reminded me of my dad, who recently died after being released from prison after 16 years. And he was not someone that I was interested in having a relationship with. I think that rehabilitation was not possible for him. I think he should have been kept in prison. And yet, when I read that book, I thought of him and the social workers that worked with him and the therapists that worked with him and his probation officer. And I thought, you know... The, the best shot that he had at rehabilitation was meeting people that believed in his ability to be rehabilitated, even if the people that he had hurt didn't believe in it and didn't think it was possible for him. So I think it takes special people to work with these populations. I think that's a great point. And work in these environments. And it's if it's not for you, it's not for you. You know, if, if you don't feel capable, like I'm looking at Jesse's face as I'm saying these things. Yeah. And well, I think of cops. Like if you if you can't handle being smarted off to without flying off the handle and beating someone, you're not the right fit to be a cop. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I and know. Same goes for prison guard yes. or anybody else in a position of authority over other human beings. Absolutely. And. Again, I think my experiences working in mental hospitals is different from working in prisons. There are some similarities, but in mental hospitals, you will see nursing staff, uh, the staff that is there to keep order. They will get triggered by things that patients say. Patients are working to get under your skin and, and lashing out. Right, or in the, in the midst of a delusion. And they will allow that to happen and then start lashing out at a patient. You know, you, you have to have special skills yeah. to work in these populations that that don't allow you to lash out at people. But when it comes to mass incarceration and all of these things, I mean, it, there's just so many factors that are at play. There's so many things that go into it. Our our prison systems are broken. I think conservatives want to send as many people to be incarcerated right. as possible. They think that that's a solution to drugs. They think that's a solution to crime. They think it's a solution to everything. And I think until we as a society realize that this is a policy problem, and we need to really start investing in community health and start from the early, early ages and ensuring that people have options for their life, then we're not going to get anywhere. It's also a timeline problem that we have because we're such a fast food culture. We want it solved right now. Yes, absolutely. And that's not the like, let's the, the thing I'm getting ready to say applies to the prison system as well because it's it's pre prison we're talking about. Like, right now, there's a big clamor about cr big city crime and violent crime in DC and New York and Chicago. You hear, mm -hmm. and we do need an immediate solution for that, or at least a, a try at figuring something out. But at the same time that we do that, we need to do the thing you said is look early. But not back in time, but what are the things that are going to prevent the situation we're in now relative to whatever the level of crime is in your particular city? Right. And that's funding pre-K. Mm -hmm. Early childhood education is maybe the most dominant factor that's going to predict whether or not someone ends up in prison. The, the statistics are overwhelming and they're shocking, and I don't have them at my fingertips, but we'll, maybe we should do a follow-up on this that areas that have pre-K and fund those kind of programs, those children have a far better shot at life, not just in like uh, advanced education, but not falling into the criminal justice system. And so we, it's a two-pronged approach relative to public policy and funding that we need to fund to whatever level policing that we do and actual um, prevention of crime. But that also involves early childhood intervention um, to get these kids on a better track. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be a binary choice, like you're saying. Like, it, it, it can be, we need a solution now to deal with, mm -hmm. with crime, and we also need to start being more forward-thinking and not just wait until things are bad, yeah. but start trying to do prevention. The other thing I want to say briefly, 
uh, I don't want to belabor it, but I'm not uh, a prison abolitionist guy. I think that's a, a bananas. That's just, just it, it's it's unrealistic to me because we're always going to have the people who kill their grandma and set her on fire. We're just it seems to me that's we're always going to have rapists, people who are predators who are looking to victimize innocent people. And if we don't have prisons, what do you do with those people? You just, you let them be in society? No. But I think that the way we incarcerate, the, the, the rate at which we incarcerate, America has more people in prison than any country, and I mean per capita, than any country on the planet. We're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a larger policy discussion to a couple of specific questions, but uh i'm 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 not a proponent of the current model uh, uh under which we we operate our prisons i think even the way we d- we structurally architecturally design our prisons says a lot about what our goals are mm-hmm. in scandinavia they have a whole different model and it's the whole, way different outcomes yeah so I, I do want to say I I hope I wasn't sounding too pie in the sky no, when I was I don't talking think so. because I I also believe that rehabilitation is not possible for some people you know like I said my dad I don't I don't believe it was possible for him I think he's always he was when he was alive <laughs> was always going to be a bad evil person so it I don't think it's possible for people but I also don't think that they should be like mistreated yeah know? I'm opposed to the death penalty. Point blank. Yeah, I think we have to have a value for human life. And um, I, again, I think if you're in a prison system because you want to like beat people down that have done bad things, that's pretty sick. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So uh, anonymous caller, again, steal yourself against the ravages, emotional ravages that this job will surely bring. Uh, we've got other listeners. Um, we have a, a Patreon supporter and the frequent joiner of the patreon calls Mm -hmm. who lives in florida who works in the prison system Mm -hmm. and we hear stories and it's sometimes it can be terrible Mm -hmm. so take care of yourself Mm -hmm. for sure yeah we'd love to hear from you 657-464-7609 of course you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to i doubt it at dollamore.com Dilemocracy. Facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. So this call happened at the right time when I saw an article from the Marshall Project entitled How a Blue Wall Inside New York State Prisons Protects Abusive Guards. Records and interviews reveal a culture of cover-ups among correction officers who falsify reports and send beating victims to solitary confinement. So beat them and then send them to solitary where the crime that they committed, the guard, Mm -hmm. is hidden. Yes, and they falsify the reports. And the reporter Alyssa Santo did an interview with Jeff Bennett over on PBS about this article. And I think it is going to upset people. So we found that when the Department of Corrections in New York State attempted to fire officers that they accused of abusing people that were in their custody or covering up that abuse, that they only succeeded in actually getting rid of that officer and firing them in about 10 percent of the cases. Um, We were really surprised to see such a low rate of success for the state when the state had found that this abuse had occurred, according to them. Um, In addition, because we were told that this disciplinary database we'd obtained only represented a fraction of the excessive force that occurs in prisons. We also analyzed over 160 lawsuits in which um, prisoners were awarded damages um, as a result of their lawsuit, and we cross-checked the names of the uh, officers accused in those lawsuits, and we found that in 88% of those cases, the state didn't even attempt to discipline the officers that were um, accused. One incident of abuse and a subsequent cover-up involved a man named Melvin Virgil. And we should say that this video we're about to show is fairly graphic. And you got access to body camera footage where you see an officer beat Mr. Virgil multiple times. But despite clear records, photos and video showing guards striking him repeatedly, 
The officer involved reported that he delivered one strike against Mr. Virgil, and other officers' reports supported that claim. Tell us about this specific case and how it fits into the, the broader culture of abuse that you reported on. So the attack on Melvin Virgil is um, unique because there was actually footage of what occurred, which is I had never seen body camera footage from inside a New York State prison before. And this case really illustrated the ways that the officers all um, basically came together on the same story of what happened, which is clearly contradicted by the video. And that story actually became the official narrative of what had happened in the Melvin Virgil case, which was that he had attacked the officer and just one strike had been been used in an attempt to get him under control and that he'd remained combative. But in the video, you actually see him struck six times in the head, and you also see him go unconscious at the moment that the officers claim that he was fighting back against them. And, um, and another important thing to note here is that Melvin Virgil was uh, sent to solitary confinement for this particular incident, and the officers' cover-up was actually, uh, their story was adopted as the official narrative in the prison of what had actually occurred. And this is despite there being video evidence and despite the officers being allowed to actually watch that video and offered an opportunity to change their reports, which uh, they declined. Well, when it comes to accountability, you document more than 290 cases where the state tried to fire officers or supervisors who had mistreated prisoners, and ultimately just 28 of them were fired. So when they talk about the video being graphic, there is blood all over the walls. They are beating this man, and they all came together to agree on a story, which was a lie. That, and, they, that there was one hit, one strike on him. Right, and contradicted by, by video, and then offered an opportunity to amend their statement, which is correct their lie, their, right. <laughs> their lie that they put on a record, and they did not do so. Right, and they all still have jobs. Yeah, and part of this is... I mean, in in the interview, Jeff Bennett asks, what is preventing the system from holding these people accountable in these abuse cases? Oh, me, 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 yeah, me, uh, yeah. me. Mm-hmm. unions, yeah. police unions, absolutely not unions in general, not the not the service workers union or the Teamsters, specifically um, the Fraternal Order of Police, th- these unions that protect these people who are in positions of power and authority over others make it almost impossible as they've described only 10 percent of people accused of abuse and and assaults are able to be fired yeah so she calls out police unions directly and she talks about how one of the protections that they have in place is this arbitration process where an arbitrator gets to decide whether an officer loses their job or not in these abuse cases in these situations where there's you know an abuse case that has yeah. occurred. We're not talking about underperformance that they call in sick too many times. We're talking about beating people under their care. And right. that's what this is. Right. And and they found that in these in these abuse cases where there are arbitrators that they rule with the officer three quarters of the time when the state was attempting to fire them. Yeah. So these police unions have these protections in place that essentially make them bulletproof. Yeah. Even if they are on video beating someone and confirmed lying. And people may be listening to this and they're like, well, why should we care? Like, why should we care that some criminal is being beaten in prison by the guards? Well, because what if this person is serving a sentence that is going to have them be released from prison and back into society? And they have been for years living in an environment where they are being beaten and mistreated. They're going to be released into society. And how do you think that person is going to perform in society? Rage. Feeling hopeless. Right. Yeah. So if you can't care about people on a human level and just not wanting them to be like tortured, then we should care because of how we want to be treated. And if people are going to be released into society, we want them to have been in an environment where people believed in their rehabilitation and treated them like it was possible. I mean, listen, if you're someone who wants to live your life by, by Stone Age eye for an eye, maybe it's time for you to step out of the conversation. Maybe you're not, you're not suited for policy debates at a higher level where we want to be a civilized society that has moved beyond rules set forth when we barely had the wheel. 
Yeah, and I'm very sympathetic to it because, again, I you know I talked about my dad, and I don't get into details about about stuff, but bad stuff, very very bad stuff, and, beyond being a Nazi. Yeah, and you know, it. I, on a very personal level, understand that impulse to want someone to be punished and removed from society and never have access to people again. And I, I support that in cases. It's just, you know, we... I also don't think it's good for the guards to be beating people, you know? Like, for them as human beings to be, like, beating people. Yeah. I, I don't know. Being in prison and beating people. And that's uh, not... They shouldn't be in society either, you well, know? Well, the... the other, it, there's no surprise that domestic violence is off the charts among prison guards and police. Right, right. It's because they behave this way in their life, in their occupation. During the day, you can't just flip that switch off. Yeah, yeah. You, you bring it with you everywhere else. Yes, yes. So, terrible story here. And it's something that we need to get our arms around and get changed in this country Change the culture of policing. Change the culture of of guarding prisoners. Yeah. So we're going to keep this theme of cop criticism going with an 11-year-old boy that was shot in the chest after calling 911 when an ex-boyfriend showed up to the house. 11-year-old Adarian Murray still has bandages where he was shot in the chest Saturday by an Indianola, Mississippi police officer. He didn't know at the moment that he was shot. His mother, Nikayla Murray, remembers the chaos and confusion while holding her bleeding son. He was, he started singing gospel. He started praying. We started praying. We're very religious. Did you think your son was going to die? At that moment, I didn't know. Murray says she asked her son to call 911 after an irate ex-boyfriend showed up to her house around 4 a.m. Saturday morning. When Indianola police arrived, family attorney Carlos Moore says officers banged on the door and told everyone to exit the house. As Adarian was following that order... He went out of his room and went towards the living room. As soon as he got in the living room, he got shot by that same officer that told him to come out. He didn't have anything in his hands or armed? or Nothing. He had nothing. Moore and local media identified the man who shot Murray as Officer Greg Capers. He's currently on paid administrative leave pending an investigation. CBS News reached out to the Indianola Police Department, but they declined to comment. Calls to Capers were unsuccessful. The Murray family staged a protest and sit-in at Indianola City Hall, demanding police release body cam footage of the incident. The family deserves answers, and they deserve it sooner than later. You had an 11-year-old boy come within an inch of losing his life. For CBS Mornings, I'm Omar Villafranca in Indianola, Mississippi. So this was a four foot ten child, eleven year old. Yeah, I hadn't seen I hadn't seen this clip, but I this morning watched a package on CNN. There's no way to to I don't know what this cop's excuses are. We don't know because even CNN has been reaching out and he won't respond. Mm-hmm. But there's no way to have mistaken this child as a man. Mm-hmm. He's a little little boy yes yes and the family has filed a five million dollar lawsuit against the city of indianola the police chief and then the officer who shot uh, adarian greg capers is his name is the name of the officer and you know what's interesting about this is that you often hear again we're gonna invoke his name ghouls like matt walsh say well when if a black it's only ever when a white cop shoots someone mm-hmm. that we hear about it you never hear about it the left just keeps their mouth closed and democrats and the press and the media they never talk about it when it's a black cop yeah well here we are capers is a black cop yes yeah and not only are we talking about it we just played a media outlet talking about it and i just watched it this morning at 6 a.m right CNN did a whole package on it. Right. And the family is obviously not happy about it. So it, it, it is strange when the conservatives try to act like it, it's it's a non-issue unless the cop was white. Yeah. And obviously it is very much an issue because this is about police abuse. And you can't be a cop if you're asking people to come out of a house and then the boy who called for help comes out of the house following your command 
and you shoot him in the chest. I mean, thankfully, he's alive. Yeah. But again, this is going to be trauma for life. Yeah. He had a near-death experience. He was... He's having nightmares now. Yeah, he was wondering what he did wrong. He was asking for forgiveness. I mean, this is horrible. Imagine this. Because this guy still has a job. He he may not be fired for this. In fact, in Mississippi, he very likely he won't be fired. Um, if he was an airline pilot who crashed a plane of his own mistakes, he would no longer be an airplane airplane pilot anymore. But because you're a cop and you've got your protections from your union, you get to allow, you're allowed to encouraged to the the system cannot get rid of you you get to go about your job with authority of detainment and arrest and the usurpation of constitutional rights you get to go on with that job in perpetuity it does speak to the institution of policing and the protections that they have even within our society because it is like there's a a large segment of our population that believes they should be given a pass for making quote-unquote mistakes when the mistakes are like shooting people and yeah. killing people yeah. and like you use the the pilot situation if you like have a few oopsies with like crashing planes yeah i mean what other profession do we give well, a few even, oopsies to take people's lives or make serious mistakes that damage people's lives for the rest of their life i love that you refer to it as an oopsie because if we if you had a pilot who crashed a plane and everybody except for one person died mm-hmm. they would not be a fucking pilot anymore it's like sorry one death, un- unjustified death, too many, you're not a pilot. Yeah. But if you're a cop and you have a weapon of death, an instrument of death on your hip at all times, nah, 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 you're good. You're right. good. Yeah. And people will say, well, their job's hard. Yeah. So is a pilot. There's a lot of people that have yeah. hard jobs where they have people's lives in their hands. And that's why you hold them to a higher standard and you're expected to perform. And if you can't perform, then you can't do the job. That's it. That's that's exactly it. Because it's hard, because you have so much response, because you have so much authority over others, yes. you should be held to a higher standard. Yes. You're not working the drive through line at Wendy's. Honest work, noble work, not demeaning it, but they would get fired for something much. If the if the cash drawer is off five dollars, those people get fired. Yeah, if they spill coffee on someone, they're gonna right. get fired. Please, this guy killed or almost killed someone, shot a ten year old in the fucking chest. Lucky to be alive. Yeah, unbelievable that it's alive. Yeah, like what a terrible shot. The cop he should be fired just for that. Well. I guess. I mean, good, good thing he's a bad shot. Yeah, He's terrible at his job all yeah. the way around. <laughs> We'd love to know what you think. This episode is... We're going to have to cut her short, Brittany Page. <laughs> 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. We were going to talk about the debt ceiling. That is still in flux right now. Um... It seems like there is a there is a, a a revolt from both radical Republicans, but also the progressives, that element of Congress that they might not even be jumping on board to pass this House deal. So we're gonna push that in a couple of days. We'll do a show again, uh, and we'll be talking about it. Maybe because of the guest we have on. Ooh. A mm, little, little teaser. But before we end the show, we want to, because this has been a lot of doom and gloom, a lot of bummer times, so and we want to leave you with your head held high with optimism. Taking care of biz. Gordon Hartman. Gordon Hartman. Gordon Hartman. And we want to give a special shout out to listener Emma. Emma sent us this story in an email because Emma remembered that we asked the audience if they ever come across good news that they should send it our way because we, you know, there's a shortage of good news stories out there. Well, we could crowdsource for good news stories. It, it Sometimes it's depressing that there aren't enough good news stories for us to talk about. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and in this email, Emma says that uh, the grandpa was in the hospital after a fall and subsequent seizure and stroke, but he's doing really well with his recovery. So we just want to give 
shout out to Emma's grandpa as well and say that we are happy to hear his recovery is going well. Without a doubt. And the so this story, Gordon Hartman, is he's the father of Morgan and he decided to create a fully accessible theme park inspired by her. Morgan Hartman was born with physical and cognitive disabilities. For years, though, she lacked a diagnosis. One thing she did have was a happy spirit. Her dad, Gordon Hartman, never wanted to see that spirit dulled. But unfortunately, at times it was. Uh, In 2006, we were on a family vacation where I uh, watched Morgan not be able to participate um, in a pool activity with some three other children. And it was simply because she was not able to be verbal. It almost puts a lump in your throat because it it gives you a very sad feeling that all Morgan wanted to do was to participate. Uh, She just wanted to play. After seeing his daughter excluded, Hartman started on a quest to create a space where no one felt left out. His idea? An inclusive theme park. He had experience as a builder and enlisted help from other experts to turn his dream into Morgan's Wonderland. Hartman says the San Antonio theme park isn't just for people with disabilities. It's for everyone. But he made sure every single experience and ride is what he calls ultra accessible. The park is believed to be the only one like it in the world. And it has expanded to include a sports center and a camp with an outdoor adventure park. And that's the beauty of this place, is that it's an opportunity for everyone to truly enjoy um, uh, playing together. But also, no matter what their condition may be, that's not a question anymore. Between all of Morgan's ventures, there's a Ferris wheel, zip lining, and even a water park. And for people who can't get their electric wheelchairs wet, don't worry, Hartman and his team thought of that. We have a wheelchair valet. You go from your wheelchair to a wheelchair that's been specially built to the size that you need. And if you're in a, a battery-operated wheelchair, we actually give you a pneumatic wheelchair, which works off compressed air, works underwater. Hartman has seen firsthand how an accessible theme park can change lives through joy. I met a a couple from Mexico City, and they had never had a chance to, because of their special need, ever a chance to play in water together. They heard about it, they came here, they cried with me and talked to me about how this was the most wonderful opportunity they had ever had. Morgan's Wonderland has welcomed visitors from dozens of countries and all 50 states, and those with disabilities enter for free. It's the small things that make the big difference uh, having fun and you know for too long I think uh, individuals have had to watch and say I wish I could here at Morgan's Wonderland and all the different Morgan's venues uh, you don't watch you participate at nearly 29 years old Morgan was finally diagnosed with Tatton Brown Ram syndrome a rare genetic disease a lifelong question answered that same happy spirit still there and shared with millions of other people who visit the theme park she inspired so this was a story that that really struck me yesterday and i was i was so choked up that i forced you to wrap the show mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and it still it it got me a little misty again mm-hmm. a second day in a row mm-hmm. because i try to put myself in the shoes of someone who has a mind that works but can't communicate traditionally mm-hmm. like we can and just being excluded having to be on the sidelines of everything all the time it's got to be amazing for like the first time to be able to be in there at a theme park at a thing that's you're involved, you're active, you're having a good time rather than just watching the crowds. Ah, just, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's a really beautiful thing. And this is in San Antonio, Texas. So Morgan's Wonderland is the name of the park. And Gordon Hartman is definitely taking care of biz for bringing this to everyone. And we would encourage you again, if you have a good news story, to send it, I doubt it, at dollamore.com. That is also where you can send a voice memo from your smartphone. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, 657-464-7609. We would encourage you to consider supporting the show uh, if it is within your budget. If you are on a fixed income, it's not something you can you can work out, do not worry about it. There are ways to support the show that don't involve money. Uh, You can share an episode with a friend. You can rate and review us on um, Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I believe there's a a Spotify element now where you can actually 
like chat or talk about an episode or oh. message or there's some they're really they're doing some innovative stuff on huh. Spotify. Not a commercial for Spotify, but I just I use Spotify. I mean, so. we're open to doing commercials for Spotify. <laughs> Spotify, give us a call. That's right. This episode brought to you by Spotify. Uh, but if you are in a position to support the show financially, we would encourage you to go to patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. There you can pick a tier, uh, see what some of the benefits and the perks are, ad free shows, year end gift, blah, blah, blah. They're good times. Uh, we appreciate the community that's built up around this show over the co- course of the almost decade that we've been doing it. <laughs> it is nuts. We love you guys. We will see you next time. Until we do, for Brittany Page. I'm Jesse Dollamore, and this has been I Doubt It.